all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Slatman. I'm honored to be a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. I've been an expert fire investigator for over 45 years, and I uh, have recently formed Consolidated Fire Investigation Services, 200 investigators throughout the country to serve the uh, insurance and uh, attorney industry. And this is Donna Ingram. I'm a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators and have been told now that it's over 31 years experience in fire and fraud. And welcome to Speaking of Fire. Yeah, today we've got really a a great guest, uh, Henry W. Stormer. He's an IAAI CFI, uh, which means a certified fire investigator, of course, through not only the international, but also through the Office of Connecticut State Fire Marshal. Uh, he has over 30 years experience in investigating fires and explosions, uh, and has been um, with. It uh, was a deputy uh, assistant fire marshal for the town of Seymour, Connecticut, and then was an EFI Global investigator, and is currently um, the fire investigator for the Vertex companies a, as a national Divi- division manager. Welcome, uh, Henry. Thank you, Michael. Well. Today is going to be kind of a, a, a different day. We're in New York uh, City. We're working uh, an 18 fatality fire here, uh, Henry and I, and uh, and it's uh, it's going to be interesting. But the reason I had Henry on the show is not only is he he's a great personality, but he uh, also has a lot of experience. and uh, And I wanted the the general public to know about. Uh, how fires uh, were investigated in Connecticut and, and in New York City, not that we investigate them terribly differently because we use a scientific ne- method, but some of, the, um, some of the requirements for fire investigators in some of the cities uh, have different rules. And so Henry's going to help us uh, figure that out. So, Henry, uh, how long have you been doing uh, this, this fire investigation stuff? I imagine that you uh, have a few interesting cases in your background, don't you? Uh, since 1986, uh, I would say more than a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say there's probably a few a year, uh, you know, the, the way trends are, are working. Right, and we, and, uh, and it's always tragic to work um, um, fatality fires, particularly if there are children or older people involved. But you, you have to approach them the same way, right, as any other investigation. Yeah, I think it's a, a misconception or any investigator that thinks that he has to do a fatal fire scene differently than he would investigate any fire scene. You know, every fire scene should be investigated the same way, and 921 mandates that. And, you know, to to think that logistically, obviously there may be different necessities for a fatal scene, but in terms of the investigation itself, it's the same investigation. Right, and when it's the higher the profile, um, the, uh, the the more involvement. Uh, well, the news media is there, the the uh, local uh, um, whatever the the local authorities are. Um, they're also uh, very interested in in that, and and of course, uh, during the course of the investigation, um, we're we're not allowed to um, to release information, and uh, and I think that's a pretty well a standard. Standardized, even in uh, in New York and Connecticut too, right? Yeah, we are not subject to freedom of information laws. We are subject to our clients are usually the insurance companies and or the law firms that hire us, and they are not subject to the freedom of information laws. It's not public information. However, the fire reports that may be generated or the police reports or the news showing up and interviewing people that were in the building is what grabs the headlines. And sometimes what you see on the news is not the same information we get when we interview the same people. Right, and, and it's, sometimes it's a, just yeah, miscon- misconceptions. Um, 
Uh, and then people um, in emergency situations sometimes believe that, that things take longer. Then, like I hear many times that the, oh, the fire department it took 20 minutes for the fire department to get here, and then when they got here, they they didn't they didn't immediately put water on the fire, and uh, they 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 stood around for a while. All all that is about is you have an emergency situation, your adrenaline is going. Three minutes seems like 20, and uh, and then of course once the fire department gets there, they have to think they they have to. Uh, attached to the fire hydrants, they have to uh, they put on the proper gear, they have to do a, what they call in the fire service a size up, right? Right, exactly. And, and I think, you know, a lot of what people are looking at is an unrealistic time frame. I mean, even if they look at their own cell phone, they can see what time they called dispatch. Um, you know, usually if you're in a city area like New York City where we are right now, Response times are, are rare to go over three to five minutes, depending on location. Um, and those guys, they get off the truck, they do what they have to do. There, there's no flitting around. You know, they, they, if they think there's people in the building, they're in there. And, um, but still, you will get the witnesses that will tell you that it took 20, 25 minutes even though we have documentation showing, you know, specifically they were there at three to five. Right. And when you and I both got into this, you know, I, I, I might be a couple years older than you, but no, just a tad. Yes, a tad, yeah. But uh, you, <laughs> we both came in through police work in, in a way because I, I was on an arson unit. Uh, I, I, I was doing the fire investigations for um, the department. And, and, uh, and you were you were at the uh, police, weren't you? I was a uh, police officer in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, unfortunately, the home of Sandy Hook Elementary School. Sorry, where I went as a you know, child. And I grew up in that town. But in 1986, I was assigned by the chief as the liaison to the fire department, and I started to handle any fire investigations where the fire marshal's office required the uh, police involvement. And then I had a, a very progressive police chief who in 1990 got together with the Board of Fire Commissioners and I became one of the first police of, municipal police officers in Connecticut to also be certified as a fire marshal. And for the last 15 years of my career until my retirement, I served a dual role as head of the detective bureau and a deputy fire marshal. And then any investigation that required, if they had uh, a code violation issue that would come to me. I would do the search warrants. I would do the arrest warrants. Um, you know, anything that, that required evidence collection, I would become involved in interviews and interrogations I would handle. So it, it was a good start. And then after I retired in 2005, being a fire marshal just became my second career. Right. And, and we have, we both work with the fire service. I mean, I, I started sort of working with them since 1971. I started, you know, not only just going down and uh, and uh, playing checkers with them. That's not really true. That's just a stereotype, okay? Mm -hmm. But um, we had uh, coffee in the fire department. Um, then I started teaching with them uh, fire service-related topics, and, and I know you've done that, too. And so I, I've taught numerous different classes. Uh, to firefighters, uh, fire police. Um, I've written numerous policies when I was with the police department on how to handle fire investigation, dealing with the other emergency services, because it, it, it really is incumbent upon all of us to work together. We're all on the same side. We all have to get to the same goal. Uh, what you see with a lot of these these incidents where agencies are fighting amongst each other is ridiculous. I mean, we're all on the same side. Exactly, and and uh, they and, and <laughs> there's a stereotype that's out there, and it's not really true, and that the police and the fire departments are always at at, uh, at odds with each other. Uh, if nothing else, um, fire investigation is, should be a team approach, and and we're all a lot of us are members of the International Association of Arson Investigators, and we have a code of ethics, and as part of our code of ethics is that we will work together and uh, that we're truth seekers, not case makers. So that's what our whole idea is, 
this can be a truth seeker, not a case maker. And, and uh, that means we're coming to the goal that you're talking about is discovering what caused the fire and so that we can probably prevent other ones, right? Right. And a lot of the training that I did centered around um, volunteer companies and trying to explain to them what it is we're looking for when we need to do a fire investigation and how we needed to limit sand disruption. Mm-hmm. You know, if we could get into a building after suppression and before overhaul, that would help us tremendously in seeing, you know, reviewing that scene and being able to say, all right, you have, you, you have to rip down a wall, do it in that room. Please don't do it in this room. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for the most part, it works out very well. You know, there are those fires where you don't have a choice. The, the fire is in between walls. They have to rip things down. I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but, you know, we, we do a lot of fire scenes in this area. And the problem in the, the Northeast, New York City, Connecticut, is it's the oldest portion of the country. And we deal in a lot of buildings built from the 1700s right on to the late 1800s and early 1900s, where it's all plaster and lath construction. We still have buildings with knob and tube wiring in them. Um, And when, you know, overhaul operations are going on, an entire wall will come down because it's all plaster and lath. And, you know, the amount of debris that's generated from that type of support or the overhaul activity is, is outrageous. Yeah, and it's, um, and it can hamper stuff. And Donna, I know that you've uh, taught um, report writing and still do. Um, don't you have something coming up uh, in, in a report writing class? Or? Actually, I have several events, um, but I will be there on the southeast coast. I won't be far as far up north as you are, Henry, but I'll be down in Georgia in July. And then here locally in Kansas City next month. And when I, you were talking... I think I, we should come visit in Georgia, Donna. Can you? That'd be great. It's going to be about four <laughs> hours, so... It's, it's going to be hot and humid. It's July in Savannah. <laughs> Very hot That's and humid. Okay. But anyway, so I wanted to ask you, you, you were talking about... Um, these buildings and knob and tube and the plaster and lath. And I was thinking, how often do you come across people splicing into that knob and tube? So some hybrid systems, is that something that you see frequently? Constantly. I actually worked with uh, Kemper Insurance, uh, had an adjuster who was writing a paper to his uh, supervisors. And the reason being, we had a rash of knob and tube fires when we had a heat wave here in the Northeast two summers ago. And what we were finding is we would go into a room and, you know, knob and tube, the design was great if it was in an open walk and that the wire could breathe and as it heated up, it would breathe and it didn't have a problem. But because it's the Northeast, everybody and their brother goes out and hires these spray, spray foam insulation companies. So they're encapsulating these wires, and when those wires are heating up, that spray foam insulation is actually becoming a flammable liquid and ignites. But I've done fires where, and specifically one in West Hartford, Connecticut, where the room of origin had knob and tube, Romex, and VX wiring in the same room. And they were all connected by one circuit to the breaker panel which was um, an old Edison new setup. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, is there, there something wrong with that? <laughs> well, and that's one thing about knob and tube that our listeners need to understand. And even the fire service, when you're out there uh, in other parts of the country that aren't accustomed to this, when you have knob and tube in operation, that's not a grounded system. So that means no matter what you've spliced into it or the you know anything spliced into it is probably not grounded because it's not a grounded system. No, but it is it does have an insulator every every so often, which is what made it good actually when it was not um, when it was right. not encapsulated because it and, yeah it could dissipate the heat and and uh, unless you cross the two of course you had to. And uh, if you put some some piece of uh, metal across the two lines, or if you, even uh, even dirt, 
We're having issues, believe it or not, with rodents, squirrels, rats mm-hmm. sitting in the wall, uh, chipmunks. And, you know, they would come into contact with the wire, and they would chew on it, and or, you know, come into contact with two wires, make the connection, they would fry. Yeah. And the problem is it's balloon construction, so the fire in the wall isn't detected until it's coming through the roof. Yeah, for right. those that, that, that don't know what balloon construction is, is... Uh, from the from the basement area all the way to the roof, if you have a, a couple of studs and and uh, next to each other, and then uh, there's no fire stops. There's absolutely no other uh, thing to mitigate the fire. So if you had a fire in the basement, it would go up within the wall. You could go all the way up to the roof area, and that's exactly what happens in some of these old structures. Um, I worked one that was uh, in Iowa where the um, the, the, uh, the local person thought, and, and, and it just accidentally, uh, or inadvertently, I guess, he, he saw this uh, V pattern coming out of a of a, of a uh, light socket uh, switch, right? So there's a V pattern, so he says, oh, that's what did it. But he didn't go down in the basement to find out that the fire was really in the basement and was coming up the wall, and it came out of that. Right. So that can happen, and, and even the, the, the best fire investigators in the, in the world can... Um, uh, can have a bad day, but uh, if they follow the scientific method, then they they should. Uh, it, it kind of knocks down the the idea that uh, they're going to be terribly wrong. Let's let's hope anyway. Well, I, I think that one of the other issues is the electricians that are out there working today, who are looking at these systems and they're being paid to upgrade the breaker panel. So they take out the Edison fuses that are there. They put in a breaker panel. They've upgraded the amount of uh, amps on the fuses or on the breakers without ever changing the wire out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a major problem when you have someone using a uh, power strip and they've got a space heater and a couple of other appliances plugged into it and they're just drawing too much on that line. Into many, uh, many amps. Um, Donna, when you were, we were going to talk to you about the, the report writing in, um, there's a various, uh, I go all over the country, and let me tell you, there are all kinds of different ways fire investigations uh, are reported. Um, what's your recommendation to to, uh, to fire investigators on how to present their information? First, using a format. And for, I wanted to tell you, Henry, and you'll enjoy this, uh, this program is not just me speaking. I actually have a, a speaker with me who is a retired ATF agent. Uh, his name's okay. Kevin Savage. And so we, we present this together. And he has a full background on the public side. I'm on the private side. So there's a flavor of both out there. Um, as far as <laughs> INFERS as a system that people will write summaries into, but that's not necessarily the best summary type reporting system on the public side is my understanding. The BAT system is becoming dominant, which is a very good system and it integrates with, uh, with the other systems. So, and then it goes across the board. But no matter what, whether you're just entering a summary into a public a public side report is following some type of a format. And of course, that's going to be followed by the scientific method. So you're, you're, you're following your investigation and you're using a format that's chronological, logical, and giving information. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. And, um, and, I, and the reason I brought that up is I, I know that Henry works multiple states uh, along the uh, East Coast. And uh, I imagine that he has a, has experiences with different uh, types of reporting from different uh, departments, right? We uh, uh, there's no set anything in the Northeast. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, there are, there is paragraphing and, and periods and stuff, right? <laughs> Very rarely. Most of the reports that we obtain yeah. is the Enfers report, which the fire departments have been told not to use as fire reports, right? but they do. Um, you know, the investigator usually isn't filling out the Enfers report, so even the origin and cause section is usually wrong. Um, so it, it's very hard 
The other problem we have is you can go from one town in New Jersey where you talk to the investigating marshal who sends you an email with the report he wrote, which is a good report. It doesn't charge a dime and you're fine. To going out to Southampton on Long Island uh, amongst the, uh, the Hollywood folk and uh, dealing with paying $300 for their photographs, $100 for their report, and by the time you're done, you're paying $750 for the full report. What's the quality of that report? Some of them are very good. Uh, the Suffolk County and Nassau County fire investigation teams are excellent. Uh, the Long Island has a, a local marshal. They go by township. Uh, those guys have been very good. Um, one of the problems that we find, and, you know, I think the Freedom of Information Act that, that changes from state to state where uh, I've done fires in Nassau County, New York, where I'm told that I can't get a copy of the report unless my insured signs an affidavit. Uh, and that's because they claim that there's personal information in there. Um, however, as they're telling me that, that same report is being reported in the local press. So, you know, there's some, you know, some questions that go on yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, behind the scenes. But I understand that. Don, I'm going to have to rely on you since um, I'm, I don't have a timer on this one. Uh, let us know when we're about to break. Is, are we close? We've got about five minutes. Okay. Uh, okay, so what I want to do, in, in, particularly now, and we... Actually, we cannot speak of, of things that are currently in litigation. No fire investigator that's worth his salt will um, report on, an, on, a, on a, uh, about something that's currently in, in, in uh, litigation as he could get very, very much trouble um, with, the, uh, with the courts for doing so. I, not, not only that, but also uh, different types of um, uh, attorneys. Uh, are, there, there are different reasons for keeping things confidential. So when we come back, though, I want to talk to Henry about uh, cases that I know that he's worked that have been uh, interesting, uh, whether they were fatalities or, or just kind of unusual uh, formats or, or different things happening, um, because we want to hear, because uh, what I titled the show was Fire Investigations uh, in Connecticut and New York uh, Style. So we're going to come back and see if there's any kind of uh, difference between what Connecticut does and what, what uh, New York does or something, okay? And, and then, um, Donna, if you have any uh, real wonderful questions for Henry about, uh, like, his accent or you know, what, <laughs> what did he say a few minutes ago or, you know, Actually, something like that. Actually, I was just going to say, Mike, you're, you sound more from the Northeast than Henry does. I don't know how that works, but that's exactly what I'm hearing down here. <laughs> well, that's because you moved south and you're and and see and you started hearing all the y'alls and all. <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> and that's why right. uh, that's why Kirk, that's why Kirk Atkins says, "How's your mom and them? How's your right. mom?" <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and take a break now. And uh, when we come back, come back to Speaking of Fire. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. 
FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Before the break, I understand, Henry, that you have a story. Is that what I'm understanding from Mike? Uh, I think we have many stories. (laughs) (laughs) There are many stories in the Naked City, and here's one of them. There's just so many. Um, You know, I I think that a lot of the stories that, that... kind of shape us as investigators in the area are, are just the amount of fires that involve injury and fatality and are the result of, you know, things that we've been telling people since Sparky came around in, you know, from the NFPA in the 30s or 40s uh, that, you know, to this day, people just don't involve themselves in. And I, I think that some of the worst fires I've ever been in, and I've done them in Connecticut, I've done them in New York, I've done them in Massachusetts, has been your hoarding fire. You know, if you've seen the show mm-hmm. Hoarders on uh, television, yeah. uh, imagine that building catching on fire and finding 27 cats inside the, the, the building, mm-hmm. uh, you know, gallon jugs full of urine, um, it's basically a combustible nightmare where you have a flash fire above the top of, of a lot of this stuff. And, you know, it's basically at that point when you're going to investigate that scene, it becomes a hazmat scene. <clears throat> Just strictly due to issues with bodily fluid, garbage, uh, potential rodents, issues of extreme mold that has accumulated on walls, floors, ceilings due to the amount of, uh, you know, storage that's been in the place. And then, you know, bodily fluids that are being stored in, in jars. And, you know, the biggest problem is the fact that you have extremely limited, uh, extremely limited access in terms of walkways and trying to maintain a safe, um, passageway for you as an investigator to get in and out of that out of that space. Yeah, it's really true because I worked in the and, and the fire fire department the first ones there and the worst part because they they don't know that when they go through that front door that there's only a certain limited space to go through these stacked newspapers or pieces of furniture and things of that nature and it's a it's a it's a, it's a labyrinth of, of different it's a maze. And, and people, and with all that amount of stuff burning, too, it'll burn through the floor. Fire departments, uh, fire, fire uh, officers have been killed by a fire in the basement. It'll burn away a, a hole in the floor. They go into the first floor and end up in the basement. And because it's the amount of this material, uh, they can't get them out in time. Well, they can't get the victim out. And then the problem becomes suppression. Yeah. How do you when you don't have access, try to, you know, dig down into four feet worth of piled newspapers and magazines and cardboard boxes and put that fire out. I worked one 
in uh, Connecticut where the fire chief ordered the highway department to show up. They cut the back wall off the rooms and brought in a bucket loader and were using the claw to dig the rooms out. And then they would extinguish the piles, you know, fully saturate the piles once they were uh, in the yard. There's just no other way to do it. And the problem in that situation is we're not going to do a fire investigation because it is incumbent upon the fire department to destroy this house to be able to extinguish it properly. Yeah, I've been, right. I've been lucky in a lot of them that are, on the that are that, that uh, there's still enough there to, to do an investigation. I, I'm thinking of one I did in Oklahoma that where, um, however, the... Uh, this guy had kept uh, just bags of trash and trash and trash everywhere and in the kitchen and, and it was a kitchen fire and and uh, anyway um, we're digging it out and we're trying to get all this stuff out of there and um, and you know that everything we move is just it moves on its own because it's full of roaches just roaches everywhere um, yeah we ended up taking the <laughs> we ended up taking the uh, range from this place because he was saying it was a defective range but it really wasn't it was it was him, but, but um, accidentally he didn't do it on purpose. But anyway, at any rate, um, we wrapped it. That we we had to spray it, a whole bunch of for for roaches just to spray it, just to, so we could wrap it up and take it in the trunk, or otherwise we we're going to take it back to the to the, <laughs> to the warehouse. So yeah, and uh, and I and I've worked with fatalities where the, I'm thinking of one uh, floor furnaces. Floor furnaces uh, are still around. Uh, recently, um, not too recently, but in Kansas, they had a, a, a woman that was killed because um, she stacked all of these materials on the floor furnace, and then, of course, they ignited them. Eventually, something, uh, I mean, it got to the point where it was ignition temperature, and, and uh, she couldn't get out because of the smoke. And they found her in the kitchen on uh, on top of the some of the debris, some of the stuff that she had saved, she was outside of the path. She was trying to crawl over to get to the sink. To get to, no, to get to, to the door. Ugh. Yeah, so it's terrible. Uh, so tell me, a, tell me a story. Tell me a story of, a, of a, a Connecticut or a New York fire that you think is interesting. New York fire. What we see, and there's several, you know, I can't just get it down to one, but I'm sure this happens across the country. But our city areas are just being inundated with electrical fires being caused by garbage that the insureds are buying at dollar stores. Ah. Uh, whether it's an Asian manufactured knockoff, uh, they're buying, you know, they come home and they'll, they'll say, well, I got these great uh, power strips. Two for three dollars, and they can't understand why when they plug three phone adapters into it, an Xbox, and a television, that there was actually a fire in it. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's hard to get the the message across to people that aren't listening. And we do numerous fires every year that have to do with the overloading of power strips. Yeah, and and and, uh, and then of course in the in the winter, we're dealing with uh, things uh, too close to combust uh, combustibles too close to electric space heaters, things like that. All of the manufacturers now have uh, have these warnings that say don't put anything within three feet of the front of your of your electrical space heater, um, and that's because of the thermal inertia of the things that could. Well, uh, and the the other disclaimer that they put in the owner's manual is plug directly into an outlet, do not plug into an extension cord. Right. And almost everybody, because if, you know, grandma's cold and her chair is away from an outlet, they're going to use a, uh, an, an extension cord or a power strip so that the space heater will come over and get closer to the chair that, that they're sitting. Yeah, not to mention too close to bedding, uh, material draperies, draperies. Yeah. Oh, and, and then let's do it the other way. And so, oh, now we're now we're talking about the summer. Donna, Donna talked about Savannah. It's a little bit warm down there in the summer. Um, so now we're going to turn on the air conditioner. Uh, the people have 
window air conditioning units and they're plugging them into extension cords correct instead of, instead of uh, directly into a wall or they're daisy chaining them they're having multiple extension cords um, and it, it's just um, it, it's so bad when somebody gets hurt or killed because of, um, of, of them not following the recommendations uh, yeah you know what it, it's kind of sad that these manufacturers have these, these um, manuals and it's really kind of sad that they have to put uh, put things down to those uh, warnings like common sense things. You'd think so. Right. Like, do not use a blow dryer while taking a shower. Right. <laughs> right. Sounds <laughs> right. like fun to me. Yeah. Don't use your toaster oven in the bathtub. You know. Oh, it's no different than the dry cleaner bag that says this is not a toy. That's right. This is not a toy. You know, I mean, there's got to be some some responsibility on individuals at this point. Um, yeah. You know, like I said, we've been teaching people for years, put in smoke detectors. But how many fires are we still doing in this area where there are no smoke detectors? Or because it was too close to the kitchen, they've taken the battery out of it, and at the time there was a fire, it didn't work. Um Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. We're just beyond Christmas now. And all those people that took the batteries out of their, their smoke detectors to put it in little little Johnny's car for Christmas, put those batteries back in there. Put them back up. Um, I, I worked a fire in, in, a, in a place where this, this three-year-old was killed. And the smoke detector was, was on the bookcase, mm-hmm. not on the wall. Because they had taken it down to to, um, to power it to it. Well, and the other problem you see, and all you have to do is check social media to see how many people still on January 10th have uh, live Christmas trees still in their house. <laughs> yeah. That were put up the weekend after Thanksgiving, and those things have been sitting in a house now for, you know, going on six weeks. They're not taking water anymore. They're dry. Get them out of the house. That's right. And don't put them in your, your fireplace and try to burn them in the fireplace. Oh. People do that. And what they, it causes just massive fire. And, uh, and like their house, the, the, the chimney or the, uh, you know. Yeah, the pine from the, or the sap from the pine is terrible for a, for a chimney and flu. Yeah, sure. And uh, I thought you were going to say something about a different kind of sap there for a second. Uh, no, sir. All right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk to me about this. Tell me, you got come on. You got a funny story. You got once upon a time there was this firefighter, right? And he was walking around, and it was you. <laughs> and and you fell to the floor, and you, and you said, "Mother, I don't know." What I you're will doing. tell you that when I was a fire marshal, I showed up at a fire scene. It was at a uh, an elderly housing community where we had old homes. Old homes, or uh, maybe old. It was a, it, well, they were built in the seventies, and they were built with texture one eleven siding. There, there's, they uh, have issues with combustibility. Okay. Let's say. All right. Okay. Well, we get a fire one day, and you know the fire department shows up. I'm the marshal. I show up. The smoke is blowing across the road. I can't see anything. I park my car. Fire department shows up. They can't find the hydrant. They drive a thousand feet down the road. They hook up to the hydrant. They bring the hoses back. The fire's all said and done, and it appears that the fire marshal parked right in front of the hydrant. <laughs> so, needless to say, I took all the guys out to a, a Mexican restaurant and bought all of the rounds that evening to apologize for <laughs> the amount of hose that they had to uh, and, yeah. to extend and wrap. Yeah, well, we had one in, uh, I think it was Kansas City, Missouri, where you're not supposed to park in front of fire hydrants, people. So here's this brand new, I think it was brand new Lexus. And he parked right in front of a fire. Well, okay, what did they do? Broke they the windows. Broke, broke one of the windows out, ran the hose through the, through the cabin of the car, I mean, the passenger compartment, right? And, um, and, and, of course, he came back and he waited. They gave him a ticket. And um, don't do that. You're, you're putting people, people at risk. Right. How many fires, because I had a guy who worked for me for years, Larry Stemerson, 
Zimmerman, a great guy. He, he kept telling me, look at the house with, that has the fire department in the front because that's the one that's going to burn. Because he was going to, for a whole stretch there, every house that he was working had fire, fire hydrant in front of it. So, but he, you're in, in New York and Connecticut, you've got a lot of fire hydrants. But the problem is, in Connecticut, we have a lot of areas where there's no public water and there are no hydrants. Really? And people are paying more for their homeowner's insurance because of the fact that there's no public water protection. <clears throat> um, the area of town I live in, um, I'm right next to a hydrant in the next town over, which is about 800 feet from my driveway. But going in the other direction, the hydrant system and the water system stops 2,000 feet away from my house. So... It's it's tough in, in rural areas because what they try and do is they, they send the water systems through the populated areas, but they're really not running them up through the rural neighborhoods. And yeah. a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, over the last 20 years, houses have been built in areas where no one ever expected houses to be built. And, you know, it's all rock ledge. And to try and put in a water system is cost prohibitive just in blasting costs. Sure. And uh, well, there's a there's a there's a lagoon system where uh, the volunteers will uh, respond. They'll have a they have a portable from a pond pond, and they fill that up from streams. They fill it. I mean, you can even run run uh, tanker tankers to that to to go back and forth. And so that's a, that's one answer. The problem with now in the United States, anyway, and I think it is in a lot of countries like. Australia, New Zealand, etc. We're losing a lot of volunteer fire departments, and you know, in the rural areas for sure. The um, the firefighters getting older. Um, the the sons and daughters are moving off to the city, or they're not involved, or if they are staying there and they're not involved, and they don't want to get involved with them. What I've noticed is the volunteer departments in our areas are staffed by one of two sets of people. There's the older generation of volunteer firemen who are driving the trucks but pretty much aren't involved in doing any more suppression activity, and kids. But once the kids are done in college, they're not coming home anymore, and they're no longer members of the department. It was something they did from age 18 to 22, and now hopefully we'll get another set of kids that, that are coming up. But there's a maturity issue on firefighting. And I think one of the things that we notice, and this isn't a knock on, on the fire departments, but we can see almost immediately when we show up at a fire scene whether we had a volunteer or a paid department. Because with a lot of the volunteer departments, there's no entry into a burning building. They try and fight the fire from the exterior, whereas the paid departments are going inside and fighting it from the inside. Uh, and I'm sorry, but I have to agree with them. I don't want to see four 17- and 18-year-old kids going into a fully involved house fire, either. No, absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, and I think it's a level of training. And, um, there, you know, and there's policies of the departments. Uh, there's a lot of things that go in. And there are insurance requirements and what age they have to be. Oh, there's, sure. there are, there's a lot of issues. You haven't, I don't know how on the East Coast, but they used to have fire tags. You had to buy a fire, you had to buy, buy a fire tag to, to, uh, or they, if the fire department came and you didn't have a tag, they, they wouldn't put out the fire. I did fly down to do a fire in Mississippi a couple of years back where uh, the way the jurisdictions are set up, the, my insurance home burned to the ground. There was nothing left. There wasn't a piece of wood in that house that wasn't consumed. It was fine ash throughout the home. And it turns out that the city fire department had showed up on scene, but my insurance house was on the county side of the road, and the city would not just extinguish the fire. There's no such thing as mutual aid agreement? Nope. Oh, wow. No. And, you know, you hear those stories where if you didn't give your donation this year, you know, pay your fire tax. Yeah. You know, some of the uh, southern states won't extinguish the fire at your home, even if you're standing there trying to pay them at the back. 
remember I'd been a, at some. Um, Donna, you moved down to uh, you, you moved down to southern Missouri now. Um, have you have have you seen anything down there? I mean, I don't know how how that works down there. They have mutual aid agreements, and actually, uh, interestingly enough, some of the bigger departments actually will cover the smaller departments. So. Um, I don't know if it's due to equipment. I haven't really got a gauge on that, but they do have mutual agreements down there. And it's the same type of thing. Like the city I live in is six miles long, but only about four miles wide. So it's really a long, but and it's surrounded by uh, a large city and then rural areas. And so they will actually send departments that are further away than, than the local one. And I'm sure it has to do with how many alarms it is and so forth. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, it, I don't know how it is, but, uh, well, it, let's talk about New York City for a moment. New York City has a lot of fire departments. I've got a lot of fire stations. Uh, it's got a gigantic population. They have a large density of population here. Um, their response time is terrific, right? Yes. Yeah, like I said, normally three to five minutes on most fires. Uh, rarely more than that, unless the companies are tied up somewhere. But New York City is very good at if one company goes out, filling that house with another um, company's truck. Right, they move up. They, they move right, up they, another. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I, I think a lot of their issues and, and what hampers extinguishment efforts in New York City are the construction issues we talked about. Oh, all, the, all the different construction that's going on, the, the highways, the... Well, that and balloon construction buildings uh, over the years, renovations that happened that no one is aware of, uh, where you enter a room and you're hitting it with water and unknowingly hitting a wall that's not supposed to be there because in 1943 someone put a wall up there. Uh, right. we, we see a lot of those issues. You know, uh, and, yeah, and a it, lot of the home, oh, go ahead, no, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just, uh, no, finish your, your piece. I wanted to talk about traffic for a minute. Um, well, traffic in the city is a nightmare. Trying to move, you know, trucks and ambulances and, and police cars through New York City at different times of the day um, and, and certain roadways can be impossible uh, you know, because there's nothing to put the vehicles. It's funny. I was there the end of September, and I felt like I was in Rome or London because even though it appeared to be gridlocked, when a pumper came through, all the taxis and the Uber driver, all the drivers moved in all, you know, up sideways and all kinds of ways to let them through. So I can see that those response times are good because people know to move out of the way, even though they're sitting still, they just started inching around. And it really did resemble London or Rome where it's organized chaos is what I call it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I've seen that. And, you know, I've actually been involved in having to, move to the right or pull into a, a driveway somewhere to let the truck go by. Um, you know, it happens a lot. It, it's crazy, especially if you're in Midtown. You're anywhere near the Times Square area, and, you know, you think about, I, I was noticing this year watching the ball drop, that they actually had blockades at each block, which would allow for traffic flow in the event of an emergency, whereas... 20 years ago, Times Square was blocked from lower Times Square up, you know, 10 streets with millions of people. And if you ever needed to get an ambulance, a fire truck, or any type of response in there, it just wasn't going to happen because you, you had no place to put the people. Yeah. I, I saw that. I was watching that. And were you actually outside? Because it was like 13 degrees. I would never in my life do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it because I thought you were nuts. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was home sitting in a nice warm bed with a blanket on. <laughs> Probably over. Look, we bed, only have a, a couple minutes left. We're about three minutes out, just to let you know. Okay. Well, thank you for that because um, I, I want to tell you that uh, it's, 
in my travels around the country, I get a, I get to meet a lot of good fire investigators, and uh, and and some maybe not so good. Frankly, Henry's one of the good ones, and and um, and we want to wish him uh, all the continued good luck in his in his career. Um, is there any advice you can you can give? I mean, first of all, we're crazy about firefighters and policemen. They're, they risk their lives every day for for you, the citizens. Um, any advice you got for any young fire investigators of what to do uh, in this job now? I know it's becoming a lot more science-oriented. Go back to school. If you're in public safety, nine times out of ten, your municipality is going to pay for or help pay for your degree. Get a degree in fire technology or fire science. Um, I know the University of New Haven here does a, an arson investigation certificate program, which is good. Uh, so do I, I'm not sure if John Jay does here in the city, but I believe that they have some, uh, some courses. And I would say take any training opportunity anyone wants to give you when it comes to fire investigation or any of the, you know, uh, attached, you know, requirements that we find in, in NFPA 1033 that we have to comply with. Absolutely. And uh, CFITrainer.net, let's not forget them. Those are free right. classes for fire and, uh, fire people. Also, um, you want to you then buy the latest um, things. Kirk's 8 is out. Kirk's Fire Investigation, the 8th edition is out uh, by uh, now by um, Dr. David Ico and Gerald Hayne. Um, and so, yeah, so just stay, stay up on the 16 things that NFPA 1033 requires you to have. And if you don't know what that is, you better get NFPA 1033. Get a right. copy and figure out what you're supposed to do. That's a mention well, 921. So, hey, Mike um, and Henry, thanks so much for joining us today. And, Henry, we really appreciate it. And stay warm up there and be safe. And next week right. when we come yeah. back... Uh, thanks, Henry. Really appreciate it. And when you come back, come oh, no. back to Speaking of Fire. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week. <laughs>